Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, January 5th. In today's news, ambulances are starting to ration oxygen as America shatters its COVID hospitalization records. The EPA finalizes a devastating rule that will make it much harder to safeguard public health. And the pandemic is badly widening the achievement gap. Homeless kids suffer the most. But first, the big idea. President Trump tried to reach Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger at least 18 times before he finally got through to him on Saturday. Because get this, the previous calls were always patched through to interns in the press office who thought it was a prank. They didn't realize it was actually the president on the line yelling at them and demanding to be put through to their boss. Finally, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows arranged Saturday's conversation after collecting all the participants' cell phone numbers and linking them up directly himself. Trump is effectively sabotaging the Republican Party on his way out of office, obsessed with overturning his election loss and nursing pangs of betrayal from allies whom he had expected to bend the instruments of democracy to his will. And some are certainly trying. Trump has created a divide in his party, as fundamental and impassioned as any during his four years as president. A chorus of Republicans spoke out yesterday about Trump's shocking call to Raffensperger over the weekend, in which he pressured his fellow Republican on tape to, quote, find just enough new votes to put him over the top. Liz Cheney, the number three House Republican, said the call was deeply troubling and urged all Americans to go to the Washington Post's website to listen to the recording of the hour-long talk. Pat Toomey, the Republican senator from Pennsylvania, condemned the call as, quote, a new low in this whole futile and sorry episode. Even one of Trump's most loyal defenders, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, said it was not helpful. The president is trying to mobilize a show of strength with the idea of intimidating lawmakers who vote to certify the results, exhorting his supporters to travel to Washington for mass protests on Wednesday. Our White House reporters Phil Rucker, Ashley Parker, Josh Dossie, and Sungmin Kim report that Trump himself plans to speak to the protesters midday Wednesday on the Ellipse. Last night, the National Park Service updated the crowd estimate on the permit for that event on the Ellipse from 5,000 people to 30,000 people. And the District of Columbia yesterday called up the National Guard. Every single police officer in the entire city will also be put on duty today and tomorrow, with many on patrol, to handle mass protests. Mayor Muriel Bowser warned that they have credible intelligence that some people who are coming are planning or looking to instigate violence. And she said the city is determined to do whatever it takes to prevent that from happening. But the mayor is asking all D.C. residents to stay away from downtown today and tomorrow, while members of far-right groups, including the Proud Boys, amass to falsely claim Trump was re-elected. Members of right-wing groups have taken to social media sites such as Parler and Telegram to discuss ways to bring guns into our capital city despite laws banning open carry here and prohibiting guns on federal property such as the Mall and Freedom Plaza or anywhere within 1,000 feet of a protest. Last night, the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, 
was arrested by D.C. police on a warrant charging him with burning a Black Lives Matter banner taken from a historic black church during a demonstration last month. Police pulled over the vehicle Tario was in immediately after it crossed a bridge and entered the district. Tario, who lives in Miami and had flown in, was being driven into the city from Reagan Airport. A D.C. police spokesman says Tario is charged with one misdemeanor count for destruction of property related to burning the banner, but they're also charging him with two felony counts of possession of high-capacity ammunition feeding devices, which they found on him during the arrest. Down in Georgia, there are two things we're tracking closely today. Yesterday, a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney abruptly resigned, raising suspicions that he may have been facing untoward pressure from the president. The top federal prosecutor in Atlanta left without warning. In that recording of the call with Raffensperger, Trump is heard referring to him angrily as the, quote, never-Trumper U.S. attorney. He complained that this person has not brought criminal charges over his false claims of fraud. B.J. Pack, who was appointed by Trump in 2017, announced his resignation in a news release, but did not say why he was leaving or what he plans to do next. And he did not respond to repeated requests for comment. Pack was considered a Republican rising star. He served in the state legislature from 2011 until Trump appointed him in 2017. A Justice Department spokesman also did not respond to questions about what sparked Pack's sudden resignation or whether acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, who replaced Bill Barr when he stepped down, had sought his departure. One of the reasons this is so suspicious is that Pack's resignation comes less than a month after the departure of the U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, Charlie Peeler, who was also appointed by Trump in 2017 and quit abruptly on December 11th. The biggest story down there, though, today, of course, is the runoffs that will decide control of the U.S. Senate for the next two years. Trump, Mike Pence, and Joe Biden all campaigned in Georgia yesterday. Pence's event was interrupted by someone shouting a demand that he overturn the election results. Biden turned Trump's efforts to overturn the results into a rallying cry to try to drive Democrats to the polls. At the final rally for Kelly Loeffler, her loudest applause came when she promised to challenge the certification of the election results later this week. The Democratic candidates in the state, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, have spent the closing days trying to refocus the campaign on more local concerns like health care and jobs and the response to the coronavirus. Democrats have long considered themselves major underdogs in both of these contests, and they still are, but they've been cheered by early vote numbers and other signs in the state that many core Democratic constituencies, including suburban women and black voters, remain engaged. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, the United States has again set a record for coronavirus hospitalizations. Over 128,000 people are receiving inpatient treatment nationwide this morning for COVID. The figure represents an increase of more than 2,800 from the previous day. The largest jump was reported in California, where more than 22,000 patients are hospitalized right now with COVID, more than any other state. Highlighting the dire toll that the surge is taking, ambulance crews in hard-hit Los Angeles County were told yesterday to ration their use of oxygen due to widespread shortages at hospitals. Ambulances have also been directed not to bother bringing patients to the hospital if they have effectively no chance of survival. Adjusted for population, Arizona, Nevada, and Alabama have the most patients hospitalized with COVID right now, followed by California. 
And in London last night, Prime Minister Boris Johnson ordered a third national lockdown for England amid a surge of the UK variant of the virus that appears both more contagious and, this is scary, much worse for children. In a televised address to the nation, Johnson said the new variant is 50 to 70 percent more transmissible than the COVID that they've been experiencing. And he said it's spreading at a rate that is frustrating and alarming. The number of patients in London hospitals has more than doubled over the past two weeks. Under this new lockdown, everyone in England is asked to stay at home except in emergency circumstances. Community spread of the highly contagious UK strain has now been documented in New York. State officials there have detected the case in a man who had not traveled. He's associated with a jewelry shop in Saratoga Springs. Meanwhile, as this is happening, TSA said yesterday that a record number of people flew on airplanes on Sunday, 1.3 million, higher than at any time during the pandemic. Number two, the Environmental Protection Agency will announce a finalized rule later today to limit what research it can use to craft public health protections. This is an 11th hour move by Trump that is aimed at crippling the agency's ability to more aggressively regulate the nation's air and water. The new rule requires researchers to disclose the raw data involved in their public health studies before the agency can rely upon it for any conclusion. This is being applied to what are called dose-response studies. These evaluate how much a person's exposure to a substance, like a chemical, increases their risk of harm. But Juliet Eilperin and Brady Dennis report that this criteria is written and designed in such a way to restrict the EPA from using the most consequential research on human subjects because it often includes confidential patient medical records and other proprietary data that cannot be released because of privacy laws. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler, a former high-priced lobbyist for the coal, chemical, and uranium industries, will announce the rule during a virtual session hosted today by the Competitive Enterprise Institute. That's a think tank that disputes the idea that climate change poses a major threat to the United States. Although Joe Biden will probably seek to overturn this new rule, such an effort could take months, if not longer. Number three, this pandemic has driven drops in school attendance, college applications, and academic performance among the nation's already most vulnerable students. Low-income kids, Black and Hispanic kids, those with learning disabilities, and those whose first language isn't English. All too often, homeless children, of whom on a normal year, before a recession, there are 2.5 million in America, combine, in some cases, all of these factors. Trying to learn inside shelters for the past nine months, students have faced spotty Wi-Fi, crowded rooms, high noise levels, and sadly, harassment from some of their peers who deduce over Zoom that they lack a home. Heroic school officials have gone to great lengths around America to reach vulnerable, struggling, and low-income kids. They've expanded internet into school parking lots, provided families that can't afford them with Wi-Fi hotspots, and hand-delivered needed devices to households, including Chromebooks and iPads. But the homeless children pose a unique challenge. Their parents are sometimes unwilling or unable to communicate their circumstances, and a lot of shelters, especially those catering to victims of abuse, take pains to hide their location. So if a homeless child drops off the screen, it can prove impossible to track them down. 
Our Hannah Natanson has been spending a lot of time in shelters lately to document the toll. She writes today about a seven-year-old boy and his 43-year-old mom, Libby, at a homeless shelter in the D.C. suburb of Arlington. Libby has shoved the bed against the wall, so the only thing her son's teacher and other students can see during virtual class is a blank expanse of green wallpaper. Libby says she doesn't want the teacher or the classmates to figure out that they're homeless. They've been in the shelter since January when she fled her abusive ex-husband. Libby watched the other day as her son clicked into the online portal for the local school. English isn't her first language, and she's often struggled to navigate Arlington's endless, ever-changing, ceaselessly glitchy online learning portal. Recently, she says she started having nightmares that involve clicking through never-ending chains of non-functioning web pages. But she's developed a personal mantra, and it's this, I will make the best I can with what I have. Libby spoke to us on the condition that we not use her last name and not name her son out of fear that her ex-husband would identify and locate her. Not long after Libby checked into Doorways, the shelter, the pandemic cost her a job waiting tables at a restaurant in downtown D.C. Then her son began learning online and Libby's efforts to find new employment came to a halt. Ever since March, her days have revolved around her boy. From 8.25 a.m. to 2 p.m., when he participates in online class, Libby says she's basically always on call. Now, luckily, her son is bright, and he loves school, but it's been a challenge. Under her watchful eye, he's kept up his grades this year at a time when so many students like him have slipped behind. The boy is reading at an advanced level and has continued to take fourth-grade-level math classes even though he's only in second grade. Right now, he's just crazy about dinosaurs. And he won't stop talking about the family vacation that they took to Jurassic World when he was four, before uh, Libby's ex-husband started beating her and everything fell apart. But Libby tells herself that maybe her boy is destined to become a world-famous paleontologist someday. She says she will sacrifice whatever it takes to keep him learning. She likes to say that she's not raising a son. She's raising a future leader. And as she put it to Hannah, quote, God knows this world really needs leaders. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, January 5th. Thank you for listening. I'm James Holman. Be a leader. I'll talk to you tomorrow.